in my last, uh, the last thing I said before we ended was um, to not think of the moment when the bell was rung and then standing up, stretching back, listening to Dhamma for a little while, and then seeing if you could maintain a sense of following at least your own bodies, kind of maintaining uh, mindfulness of the body, being embodied. So it might be that, oh, I totally forgot about that. Uh, right, that instruction. But it's it's interesting that that can happen because it's it's just very normal. Um, but it's a very important uh, point of contact to explore in your lives as practitioners because if we get into a habit of thinking that the only time to be mindful, the only time of practice is when I you know, sit in meditation, then we're Unfortunately, um, we're causing a lot of kind of bad habits to, to creep in during all those other times. So it's incredibly beneficial to just think of um, the sitting meditation posture as like a time where you're, um, you like have a flashlight and it has a rechargeable battery and you're, you're recharging the battery. So you're getting that jolt of, of, uh, of energy and you're allowing that sort of mindfulness to recharge in a way it's, it's building a, a very good habit um, with understanding mindfulness, understanding how we bring the mind towards wholesome experiences like following the breath, which is often much more helpful than, than um, just following our thoughts. And the more that you can see that as just uh, a time where you're you're bringing the the mind back to that, it's sort of you're getting a supercharge. Um, but the other the other time is like um, it's sort of like you're still you're still trying to. I'm trying to think of an analogy. What is it like? Um, you're putting your cell phone on battery mode or something. So you're you're trying to keep the mind focused on the dhamma without expending all of that, that energy that you built up, uh, that mindfulness, that, those mindful habits during the meditation. And you're also trying to keep that, that same activity up of aiming the mind towards the wholesome. It's not as easy, but um, the Buddha tries to encourage us to see that we're just changing postures, that's all. You know, you get up from sitting meditation, then you walk around, you stand, whatever it is, it's just, it's just the body's changing postures, but the mind doesn't have to, to move from that intention uh, of understanding the Dhamma, bringing the mind to a focus or um, a wholesome trend or habit or pathway. And so it's, it's essential because a lot of uh, what we're doing is really like when we're not meditating, is, is really provoking uh, an understanding of Dhamma if we're aware. You know, we can see that there are times to, to understand uh, impermanence, anicca, not being sure, uh, not necessarily continuing to lean our mind towards what is, you know, I, I know this and I'm planning this and this is what's going to happen next. 
this is all, these are all opportunities for us to have used our formal meditation and then kind of continue to bring our minds towards um, a reflective path. So the, the, the sense of what we're doing in meditation is also allowing us to focus our minds so that um, we can continue to reflect on what our experience is. The, the only way that you can understand the Dhamma is through a calm and quieted and, and very um, collected state of mind. So to even be able to focus on something like, as I was talking about, what one of the three characteristics the Buddha teaches is um, anicca. And again, that's, that's the sense that there is, um, everything is impermanent. Uh, our mind states, our loved ones, um, uh, our Tesla, cell phone, whatever it is, it's impermanent. It's not going to be there. It's not reliable. We can't rely on it. Um, in fact, you can't rely on your loved ones either. You can't rely on your pets. You can't rely on those things because they could, they could um, die. They could have a stroke that changes their entire personality. They're a different, completely different person. Um, we could have a stroke and our personality totally changes. So it's even hard to rely on our own um, physical anatomy to, to prop us up and keep us going. So that um, if we collect our minds, then we're able to then allow ourselves to take advantage of all of these times where we kind of drop things. Say, okay, this isn't the time of practice. And that's a real tragedy if we go about uh, our practice with it. Because as, as Ajahn Chah would give an example, it's like you have a, a pitcher of water and you're filling up a cup and uh, mindfulness or practicing mindfulness would be like just pouring the water out. And then um, once a day, you just add a few drops and then you put the pitcher back. Whereas if you're creating a, a steady flow within your practice, um, your intention is focused on the Dhamma, understanding the Dhamma and lending your mind toward, towards heedfulness, mindfulness, um, samadhi, um, then, then that, that it's as if the pitcher is then continuing to pour and the cup is just filling up continuously. And so that's what you're, you're trying to add to your mind is that continual practice. Um, so mindfulness is continuous. And then with that possibility, then the Dhamma can be understood more clearly. So if I was to um, try to practice with this example of a Nietzsche, like impermanence, Ajahn Chah would talk about that as another way of thinking about it is um, not being sure. You know, as I had said, that that sense of I don't know, and how wholesome that is to actually bring up, even though the tendency is to not let anyone know that you don't know something. Um, but if you if you have that sense, you're continually reminding yourself of that. Then, you know, when um, when it comes to a situation um, where you just you have an automatic response, like I know what's next, but you don't know then you, you get a, a, a real sense of wisdom arising. So, oh yeah, I really have no idea what's, what's coming next or what's going to happen because we're very predictive. Human beings are always trying to predict things. That's our sense of control that we want to have is I can predict what's happening next. You know, um, Ajahn Chunda is sitting up there. He's not going to just um, die in the next five seconds. So you, 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 this would be an incredible shock, but yet that's a possibility. I could just have an aneurysm right here and then stop talking and, and that would be it for me. Um, but we don't, we don't even really bring that up in our mind as a possibility uh, or that could happen to ourselves. So 
with mindfulness um, and continuing that, then you're investigating that sense of anicca, uh, that sense of not being sure. And that's what, what, uh, what you're cultivating through your meditative practice, but then how that meditative practice, um, as I said, you have this sort of charge of your battery, how that can keep going. It's sort of like a supercharger and the rest of the day are, is, is harder to focus. It's not as easy to, to uh, maintain uh, that sense of clarity of mind, but that's what we're trying to do. And so we use that supercharger and then you can, you can think of it more as like, we don't have that strong of a, a charger for the rest of the day. So we're, we're trying to keep it going. If I just have these interspersed moments of mindfulness, of collecting the mind, um, then I'm not going to really be able to reflect on Anicca. I'm not going to be able to reflect on uh, dukkha, suffering, um, these, all these, these characteristics, not self. I won't have that uh, ability because I'm not emphasizing this in, in the practice and just like the, the everyday aspect of what I'm, what I'm doing. It's just sort of like, I don't know why I'm so confused all the time, but you know, when I meditate, it's pretty good for an hour. And then the rest of the day is just a blur and then I'll meditate again. That can be what, for a lot of people, what they're, you know, what, what Buddhism is for them. That's good, but it's just not really helping as much as it could. It's not, um, it's not bringing you as much enrichment from what the Buddha is teaching. That doesn't mean that then what I'm saying is to encourage you, I'm not good enough. I need to get better. Uh, I'm, I'm, um, I have to perfect this. I have to get better. Then we start getting into this, this whole sense of self and what's wrong with me and how I have to get better. And, um, and we, be, we make a project out of it, make us a sense of a self project. So this is something that I was just encouraging you with and, uh, why there is an emphasis on seeing that meditation, uh, you know, sitting meditation is important, but if you can take away you know, one thing from today, that's the, that's the encouragement I would say is not to berate yourself for uh, letting mindfulness fall away, but to do what you can to continue to remind yourself to, to bring it, bring it to the fore, bring it to, um, like the, the, the foremost of what's important for you. Desire works in a way that says it's not the foremost. It's not that important. It says, well, it's good for that one hour, but I got so much to do. I can't even think about this. I mean, come on, really? Like, who are we kidding? There's just so much. But as Ajahn Chah would say, like some people would say, oh, I, I, can't, I can't meditate. I don't, I don't have time to focus on anything. And, and Lumpur Chah would just say, well, can you breathe? You know, do you know how to breathe? The person saying, well, yeah, you know how to breathe. <laughs> well, then you can meditate. You can breathe and you just add a little bit extra onto that. It's just noticing the breath. So if we, if we do that, then it, it, it brings incredible rewards. Um, we can be in a situation where normally we would, we would be talking to somebody. And then if we're practicing with mindfulness, it's not just on the cushion. We're right there. And then we have that opportunity to say, I can't believe he just said that to me. I'm going to tell him what a jerk he is. And then you say, no, that's not, that's not beneficial. It's not helpful. Maybe it's not even truthful. Um, Actually, maybe I did need that kind of correction. What he just told me. 
So that comes up and that's because you, you've had a pause, you've had an ability to not just react, 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 react. You've had a point of saying, oh, right. I noticed in my body, I was reacting to that and there was some unskillfulness that was gonna arise and I was gonna say something that I would later regret. And so then we restrain ourselves. Um, that's where as, as these training rules I'm talking about, um, the precepts, we can, we can guard ourselves that way, but actually the superior way is to notice when something's unwholesome and then not act on it, rather than just have something that we're, we're hitting up against, which is still good to say, okay, I'm not gonna say something untruthful or harmful, but if we actually do that out of reflecting, oh, this wouldn't be helpful for me, this would be unskillful, I can feel it in my mind, I'm, I'm feeling angry, and it's, this would not be helpful for me to say something, um, then that's wisdom that arises. We've, we've learned something. So the last time I did that, I really regretted it. So that's the, uh, that's kind of what I'm, I'm uh, in the teaching today is that, that continuation and the importance of lending our minds towards that. And uh, I remember there was supposed to be a Dhamma talk request. But, uh, <laughs> You can practice with that. <laughs> if you want, I'll practice with, with not having a request. But you're all sitting here, so you've all made the request anyway. So. Yeah. I remember there's maybe going to be a meditation and then it. Right, 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 right. <laughs> but flexibility is the key to happiness. As Ajahn Amaro likes to say. It's a great cup as a cup. There's a cup that somebody made. That's what it says on the cup. Flexibility is the key to happiness. It's interesting uh, because he's he's so he's very busy. Ajahnamur, I don't know. When's the last time he's been here? A couple of years. And he's not coming this year, right? Okay. <laughs> but he's 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 very. Uh, if I think I've been busy while Chinyanika was gone, uh, who's the abbot, he, um, I was taking on his duties. I was the acting abbot and people will say to me, oh, you were the abbot. I said, no, no, I was just acting, <laughs> acting like the abbot. <laughs> I wasn't the abbot. Um, but yeah, Ajahn Amaro is, is uh, he was the, uh, he's about, let's see, must be almost 45 years as a monk this year. His Lumpur is 50 years. Gajanamra is now 45. And Amravati is, is an incredibly busy monastery in terms of just the activities and the things going on. And right now they're rebuilding the entire monastery over a series of probably about 10 years. I think the whole monastery will be rebuilt. And it's, it's, it's a big monastery. It started off as a school. Uh, well, I think actually it was at first a World War II um, a place where kids were, were brought during World War II in the uh, early 40s while there was bombings in London. And so it was sort of outside of London, so they, they didn't think it would be bombed. They were right. Um, and then it was a, turned into a school, and then it became Amrabati Monastery. And so those buildings have these very archaic, like I think one of the monks, they tried to turn on the heating system right when they got there, and this monk was like sleeping and then all of a sudden he just had this like massive amounts like oily jelly stuff like spurt all over him in his sleeping bag and he, like like a lot and he wakes up with this stuff he's like oh so like, okay i'm not going to use that system again so the 1940s 
Um, so now they're, this is now, um, you know, 80 years later and 75 years later from that time. And they're finally building new buildings. <laughs> and uh, so Ajahnamo is dealing with a lot in that. And also I think there's like 20 or 25 committees he's on. So that, that saying that he has, uh, adaptability is the key to happiness. It's incredibly profound because how often do we not want to be adaptable to something, you know? And uh, you know, Jessica could have interrupted me and said, this is not okay. We have a request for Dhamma talk. You said there was going to be meditation and you violated both of those things. What about truthfulness, <laughs> honest, and following through with things? No follow through. So that could be what happens. I said, well, adaptability is the key to happiness. <laughs> so we do need to, to learn um, to, you know, to kind of be adaptable in situations. And, uh, and I've had a lot of coffee now, by the way. I did, I did, <laughs> I did tell Dansky, uh, I said, oh, can you make it stronger? I told both Sakula and I think there are three people I said to make it stronger. <laughs> so that means it was three times stronger. Um, Anyway, so this is this is the 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 learning that we can have is that uh, with our with our practice and also again not to take it so seriously that we're uptight about everything um, because that's what we can do with our practice as well. Like, oh, Jinchundi came here. He said, "I have to be mindful all the time. Mindful all the time. Don't talk to me. Don't. I'm being mindful." wholesome states of mind shut up you know and so that that can be where we take it you know take the extreme of like um being sort of sort of in, in a way anti-social so we can follow our dharma practice interestingly enough that's sometimes helpful but not in a way that is negative you know so i would say when i'm saying that i'm saying well sometimes it's appropriate that when you see people in groups getting together and doing something you might say well and do that or just meditate for an hour or just you know what would be more wholesome for me to to actually just not go you know, my friends oh they sometimes they, they always end up going to a bar in the evening and i feel pressured to do that so you might say oh i'm not going to go tonight and then you see what that's like and and so in certain ways that's a skillful way of uh being social is to to not be social in certain situations that you're going to see it's going to be unbeneficial for you but that other times it's like that, you have to be very careful around how we can alienate other people based on um, in situations where it's just not, it's not helpful for us. Um, it's not helpful for them. It's not helpful for us because we're, we're being very rigid. There's no, there's no adaptability in the situation. Um, and, and then, and then we end up um, can also like, like, let's say somebody's interested in Dhamma practice and then you're just this militant, Dharma practitioner and you just shut up, don't talk to me. This is how you practice the Dhamma. And it can, you know, it can be kind of threatening and like, oh, wow, is this what Buddhists are like? And, and that's, you know, we have to be careful because that can happen. It can definitely uh, occur when we're with our own practice. Um, or we can move into the, you should that, or you should that this, and, and um, we've lost the plot. So that's a, that's a very important element uh, around the, uh, our practice, maintaining that flexibility, but then we're not doing so or we're compromising what we know is, is good for us. 
So it's the Buddha kept talking about the middle path. He's saying, always follow the middle. Don't go to either extreme. And so if we're, if we're finding that with our practice, um, it's not just kind of the way he suggested that in terms of like in India at the time, there were people who are torturing their bodies and there were other people who are indulging in, in sensuality. Um, it's also for us to gauge like, what is the, what does the middle mean for us? What is the appropriateness? So interestingly enough, a lot of the suttas and the Buddha talks about, he's like, you know, what's the right amount? You know, what's the right way of doing something? What's the right amount? What's the correct way? And most of you are familiar, I would guess, with the, um, the sutta and the, the lute, where it was a, a string instrument. And the Buddha was, I think he was talking to his, his cousin at the time, um, and, and who was uh, overdoing his practice. He was bleeding on the bottoms of his feet. Um, if I have that sutta correctly. And he, uh, he had tender feet to begin with because he was, he was sort of a well-to-do lad. He was brought up in a very rich way. Um, but he was striving so hard that the bottom of his feet were bleeding from walking meditation. And so the Buddha said, well, well you know, when you have a lute, you used to, he said, you used to, Buddha was very brilliant in this way. Uh, well, not always, but he, in all ways, he was brilliant. But he, in this way, he, he, would, he would get people to understand the Dhamma through talking to them about their own lives or what they, something they knew about. So he used to, used to play the lute and the monk said, yes. And so well, what happens when the strings were too tight? You know, would it play? So, oh, no, no, it wouldn't, it wouldn't sound right. Uh, you'd have to tune it. You'd have to tune dice, right? And what about when it was too loose? So the same thing. And so as we've heard, that's an excellent metaphor um, for our own practice, like how we're, we can just keep asking ourselves that question. Am I too tight or too loose? And usually we, we're bouncing back between the two. You know, we're not... Um, we're not always too loose uh, or always too tight. Usually there's a sense of kind of going back and forth. So that's just something that uh, I would encourage you to reflect on um, and use and try to um, think about during these times. So, so for example, when you're, you're off the cushion and you're not there, you're trying to be aware of your experience and you just see you're talking with somebody or you're engaging with your work, um, cleaning the house, whatever it might be. Um, and you just might be too, you might say, oh, this is too tight. I'm holding this way too tightly. One of the ways I like to teach about that is through our own correction of ourselves. When we, when we do recognize that we weren't mindful in a moment. And then what do we do? What's the tendency? Yeah, you idiot. Yeah. Uh, how could you? You don't go, oh, you're such a great person. You lost mindfulness again. It was so wonderful. <laughs> the irony is that that's actually what we should be doing. Not to congratulate ourselves for losing mindfulness, but to congratulate ourselves for noticing it. Yeah, that, that it came back. And so we can actually have a celebration. I often say that to people, oh, right, this is like a mindfulness party. And so you, you're like, it came back, you know, this is so great. It's pretty interesting how that's just not the tendency, is it? It's just like, oh, God, how many times do I do this? There's so many times I'm doing this. I'm such an idiot. I'm never going to get it right. And, and who's going to want to meditate with that person, you know? I mean, certainly you aren't, you know, 
you don't, you know, it's, there's not an incentive to meditate. So ironically, when we beat ourselves up like that, then we don't, we don't want to practice because who wants to practice with a tyrant, you know, and it's, it's very beneficial then to, to try to remember in that moment, like, all right, this is a time to be happy, to um, encourage myself, right? This is something good that just occurred. The, the strange thing is, it's like, no, it's bad. It's bad. It's like, no, it's, there's nothing bad about um, noticing, experiencing, bringing back mindfulness to the fore. It's only a good thing. And the strange thing is we're just focusing on past right in that moment. We're just lost in what happened. It doesn't mean that we can't learn from that and say, okay, but what actually happened? Oh, right. I was thinking about my aunt and she had said that kind of mean comment that she often says to me. And then I thought about uh, her food and how I don't like it and, and that she should learn how to cook because I'm such a better cook than her. And oh, I haven't put the cat in a while and um, must be hungry by now. And, oh, no, no, my cat died last week. I forgot about that. And, you know, on and on the, the mind goes. And, um, and then so we can recognize that. And sometimes it's helpful. You don't want to get lost in that. But sometimes it's helpful to know like, wow, okay, that was, that was about 10 minutes. I was kind of not present. So let's see what happens in the next moment. You know, can I, can I notice that again? And then we're, we're kind of starting to see patterns in our own practice where it's like, how do I keep losing it? Oh, I've been thinking about my Aunt Mary for like three weeks now. She, you know, she really upset me. And I can't, and I just am not letting that go. You know, what's going on here? How can I try to let that go? What are some good things about Aunt Mary? Then you start practicing metta and then you figure out, you know, in your practice, how can you deal with the problems that occur? You know, so it's not just like, I'm going to follow my breath. If every time I follow my breath, I think of my Aunt Mary and how rotten she is. Like, okay. There's some, it's just negative, a lot of negative energy and I haven't been able to shake it so I can bring up something like metta. So then you try practicing with that. This is what I've been talking about with Sila Bhatta Paramasa. This is the, the Buddha's teaching uh, on essentially the way we're addicted to believing in our own habits and rituals. Um, and it includes the word Sila, which comes back to how I started with those precepts. If we think that whatever it is we're doing, it might be working with the precepts, it might be some like, you know, just breath meditation till I die, whatever it is, we are just following something rotely without, with the belief that that is what's going to be good for us, but not actually investigating that that's helpful or not. And as human beings, we do that a lot. We're just like, why do you believe in this? I believe in it because it's right. It's true. Uh, I've seen it. Well, is there any other way? Nope. There's no other way. This is just how it is. And, you know, like I said, like we can do that with sitting practice, just the sitting posture is the most important thing. And yet we don't realize that we're falling asleep for like five years of our practice. Um, so Sila Bhatta Paramasa is essentially when we, we get, um, we believe that whatever it is that we're doing is helping us when we're not actually investigating and seeing that it might not be helping us. Um, and that's a, a, a very serious obstruction on the path. Uh, and it's, it's something that when seen through clearly and given up, that's the uh, reaching of the first stage of enlightenment. Um, it's called the stream enter. One enters the stream of Dhamma and moves away from the stream of the world.
So as we reflect upon this, we can, we can just continue to see in our own practice, what are those habits that we hold to, that we believe in, and we follow without any kind of question, you know, what, what it is that I do, and I, I don't question, I don't investigate it. Um, and it's quite fascinating when you realize something that you're doing with your own practice, with your own life, that you're just, you didn't realize that, that it's just some empty ritual that you're holding on to. You know, it could even be like the way that you're following the breath. Some people just, I'm just going to follow the in and out breath and that's it. 30 years, nothing else. That's it. No reflection, nothing. And then I'll be enlightened. And that's a belief that a lot of people have. It's just, there's no, why am I doing this? Is it benefiting me? Maybe I should try something else. Um, you know, no, I'm going to think about Aunt Mary for 30 years and it's okay. I'm, follow, I'm trying to follow the breath. So when we, when we have that, that possibility, that opening of the mind, then we, we, we start to, to see there's other, um, there's habits we can expose ourselves to that we're not, we're not really aware of that we're doing. So it's getting kind of a meta, M-E-T-A, meta view of our own experience. Anyway, that was a bit of a little rant to start with. And uh, if there's, uh, we can maybe do a little meditation later, but for now, if there's any questions that any of you have, I'm happy to answer anything. Uh, if not, we can just, we can also meditate. Yes, Margaret. Well, on the topic of building projects, because you mentioned that Reverend Omar is also. Right, yeah. Could you talk about um, your experience with the Kuti projects? Oh, dear. And Duka and some practice and any like great takeaways? Doesn't this end at three? <laughs> <laughs> It's I don't know if I can condense it by then. Three three o'clock tomorrow. Uh, I've been in, yeah I've been involved in um, one of the things that happens with ourselves. You know I think I think I'm not alone in this. Is that you get an idea in your head, and then that idea stays there for a very long period of time. So for me, there were these four cabins these four kutis uh at abayagiri and they were everything is um sort of over you know many decades everything's being replaced so you're always kind of replacing things but there were these four cabins that were put up in 1998 between 1998 and 1999 and in fact they were put up when we thought like oh we, you can build a 10 by 10 structure and you don't have to ask the county and it's all good and then I think after they put up these four cooties, county came in. What are you guys doing? No, you can't put up four. You can't put up ten by ten structures and have people living in them. You need to get permits. Oh dear. So they got the, they got them retroactively permitted, um, and the there there are particular. It's called Class K, which means owner builder. So it means you're not going to sue the county if anything goes wrong. But they still had some some requirements so they had to retrofit some of the cookies but not much so these things were pretty janky <laughs> and they were only supposed to last about five years and we just took them down in april from 1998. 
Um, so you can imagine what it looked like inside of those cooties. I was in one of them for years and I didn't know there was like rats and mice kind of running back and forth and doing their thing right under my head. Very quiet. Um, so that, that I, the point I'm making is that for years I had this idea uh, while I was gone from Baigir, I was like, I'm going to come back. I want to, I want that's one thing I really want to, let's get, let's, let's rebuild those four kutis are very nice sites and um, be so nice to rebuild them. And in the way that I want, <laughs> which means in the way that I will experience Dukkha. So it's like, it's like just uh, Dukkha, come on in. Just, you know, you have an idea and then you go for it. And I, the problem with that is that then the idea becomes when I um, initiate this idea and it comes to fruition, I will be happy. And that is, that's a setup for absolute failure. Um, however, if we, if we do it in a way where I say, well, I'll initiate this, uh, I'm still interested, but it's definitely not going to turn out the way I wanted. There's going to be all kinds of failures and problems, and hopefully I'll learn from the experience. Um, and then uh, I won't hopefully have too much perfectionism around the, what happens, um, and I'll be okay with disappointment. All of that sounds very good, um, but that's not how I went at it. <laughs> it was, it's like, oh, wow, it's going to have really nice walking paths going to be attached to the kuti. And how's that going to work? And um, and Lumpur told me, he's like, oh, we've looked into that. It's way too expensive. It's not going to work. Um, but what do you know? <laughs> so, so then I, I started to, to plan them. And then, you know, I had this really nice kuti. I started to kind of plan it out. And I was even impressed with my own drawings and how I got the angles right and everything. And then, but I had, I had like, um, then another monk said like, oh, why don't we make it more like this? Oh, that's brilliant. That saves a lot of money. So it just went forward. Ajahn Yanako, I should say that he said, um, I kept asking him about this in 2022. And he said, no, we have to finish this remodel that we're doing for like a, a older, older age home for the monks, um, which we were completing. It was a big project. And so finally, like right when he leaves, okay, you can start now. <laughs> And I come back and I just immediately started. And that was the unfortunate part because the winter retreat came. And so then I obviously, I, I couldn't let go of it. Um, and I knew though that because of how the things work with planning and getting permits, all this stuff, you, you, can't, you can't start that in April. You have to be ready to build in April. So you got to get the permits done. Anyway, this is all a big learning process. So um, 22, 2023 winter retreat, uh, did not really occur for me. Um, but I, I helped the uh, one thing that I was happy was I helped the whole community really have a pretty significant retreat. It was probably the most spacious retreat for everybody else. Um, and that was a really nice feeling for me to have provided that for the community. And I just worked on it. And of course, when you work on something and you're in the middle of a retreat, it's just, it's, uh, there's an incredible amount of dukkha because there's this, this sense of wanting to be doing what the rest of the community is doing. But then there's that, that sense of, of um, knowing that, well, it's not gonna happen if I don't, if I don't let go of this, um, this sense of being on retreat. So I think that one of the things I learned about that was 
um, well, it, you don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater. You can kind of, you know, I could, I could do things in a more moderate way. Um, so that was, that was more difficult to do during the retreat I found for myself. Uh, it's much easier, as I think most of you know, when you put yourself in the conditions of a retreat to let go of all of your responsibilities and just be like, okay, cell phone's gone, uh, all planning's gone, family's gone, everything's gone, I just got my clothes on, that's it, um, you know, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make sure I eat, and then you're on retreat. But um, it's too bad that sometimes it doesn't go the other way where you, you kind of moderate that or you figure it out. Uh, and, and some people have learned that in a skillful way. And I think the monks and nuns, um, that's something they're always dealing with because there is often a lot of retreat time available, but there's responsibilities we have to have. So the, the, I think what I was getting at was just that sense of how we enter into um, any kind of major project is incredibly important because if we're not setting ourselves up to understand disappointment, to understand failure, to understand um, difficulty. If it's all just going to be all right, and I'm gonna get what I want and how I want it, then unfortunately, like we're gonna struggle. We're gonna have a lot of pain during that, that kind of an experience. And so that's what it's been like for me. Um, and a lot of learning at the same time. So just dealing with, um, becoming really a foreman on a project. And um, I'm not sure if all of you know that we, we live on a mountain and some of, two of these kutis were, you know, they were about seven minute walk from a road. And so the, our contractor said he can't walk in the materials. He can't have his men walk in all the materials. That would be quite exorbitant in terms of how much we'd need to pay them for the time. So then we said, okay, well, the community will do that. And we figured out, and it's so the first two sites were seven, 760 pound bags of concrete needed to be moved in. And all of the wood, all of the, you know, so like four by six um, timber, 12 feet, 16 feet long, um, everything needed to be moved in. We moved in an entire metal roof two times to those sites. Like one time was like a caterpillar. So the monks are just, the monks and the and the the guests were just walking this thing up, this you know, like thousand pound box up. Uh, that was like a like a twenty foot by um, you know five foot wide box, and uh, that was a good lesson because we were moving it up, and I was the only one left up top. I was always the brains of the outfit, so I'm kind of telling people what to do, and then they're resenting it, um, and. <laughs> And I had to get used to that, you know. <laughs> we were at a meeting recently and, and uh, one of the monks was also involved. And I have, I've had some foot injuries, so I can't do as much heavy lifting as the others. And so another monk was involved in the same, it was part of the project. And then we were at a meeting and another monk said, I really, I really liked working with you. He said to this other monk, I really like working with, a, working with somebody who's like, not only just calling shots, but doing the work too. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, all right time to practice <laughs> so so it's that's what it's been like so on that one day i was like kind of up there and all these guys disappeared and it was 10 15 we usually quit at 10 30 and so i'm like what are these guys doing i can't believe it and just you know i'm the one who needs to tell them whether they can leave or not and they're all gone and i'm up here just working you know lifting all this stuff and moving it here and there and they just disappear like that 
on and on the complaining mind's going. So then I start walking down the hill and then I see this caterpillar of like 15 people moving this thousand pound box up the hill without me. And, uh, and so I was like, oh my gosh, that's so wonderful. I won't tell you what I was just thinking. <laughs> so that's the, you know, that was kind of um, the, the experience that I had a lot during the building was just watching my mind, seeing like the, the tendencies of wanting perfection, wanting it to work out my way, um, uh, wanting the contractor to obey every word that I suggested and agree with me and think that I'm such a wonderful builder and more, no more than him. Um, and that, you know, that's, and also, you know, it, I, I had to be very careful with, um, I, I'm working with, with his workers and with him and he's not there all the time. So I also had to learn to be very careful with his workers and they would ask me, how do you want this? How do you want that? And I said, well, do it this way. Don't do it that way. And then our contract would say, uh, you got to talk to me. Because <laughs> if you tell me that, it's going to be, don't tell me that, it's going to be very confusing. They're going to follow what you're saying. And then I'm going to tell them something different. And so there was all kinds of things that um, were important for me to learn about. But mostly it was that sense of expectation, perfectionism, um, even this morning, you know, there's, there's a quarter inch of rain coming. We don't have rain in the summer really at a bike area and there's a quarter inch coming tomorrow. Um, and, and I know there's some materials out and I had, you know, tried to cover everything right before I left, but there's materials out. And so there's a sense of responsibility that I have to protect the materials because they're, everything's donated. Like these are all donations um, in terms of the money that's, that's paid for that. And, and then there's the opposite end of that, which is taking too much responsibility because there's in a way I could have said like, you know, I actually did some research. I said, okay, what is this OSB? Is that going to get damaged in the rain? And first, of course, on the internet, yes, it's going to get damaged. And then, oh, actually, no, it doesn't, it doesn't get damaged. There's all buildings experience rain during the building process or, or not all, but that's a, an inevitable part of it. So I could have said, okay, these guys start at six, it's going to be raining at five. They can deal with it. You know, that's their job. So it's also learning about how to step back as well and just think, okay, well, I don't know. It's not, you know, the, uh, the contractor, he can deal with the weather. He can deal with these issues. It doesn't have to always be us. So that that's a, kind of the major part of what I've been learning is like trying to let go of um, those things that I'm always trying to control and and to know like well is it okay if you know is it a total disaster or is it or is it can it be rectified is it going to be okay um and so that's the that's one of the i think a lot of elements that i've been dealing with in terms of the the project you have to deal with as i was hinting at a little bit like every now and again people aren't so happy with what they're doing you know, they don't like carrying a 60 pound bag of concrete um, or, or the fact that if I'm not carrying a 60 pound bag of concrete, then how does that feel when people, um, you know, say something like, oh yeah, like leaders who work too. <laughs> uh, and then other people who don't know that there's a, an incredible amount of work in terms of the mental faculty that needs to be devoted to it. And that just because people are working for two and a half hours in the morning, they don't see the fact that there's, well, my mind's kind of going all day long, trying to, you know, make sure that things are going well and, and um, coming out okay. And then the contractor, our contractor came to us, who's, a, who's actually a supporter of the monastery and very close 
Um, now we're very close, uh, even though we bicker with each other, but it's more brotherly. Um, I'm sure like if I have some negative things to say about him, I'm sure he could, the side would be even on the other side about what he'd have to say uh, with me, but we're, we're, we're good friends. And um, I think he also recognized at one point he said, because he's a supporter, he doesn't want me to, he doesn't want me to disrobe, but he said, hey, you know, if you ever need a side job, I just want you to know, like, you maybe you need to pay for your robes. He knew he knows we don't pay for them. So you, you can be a, you can definitely be a project manager for me. So, um, oh, did he say for me? I don't know. If he said it for me. Uh, somebody else, somebody else's project manager. I'll pay you a lot of money to be somebody else's project. Um, so yeah, there's there's that that sense of also working with another person, also the sensitivity of what it meant to choose someone who was a supporter of the monastery and the complexity of that. If you choose somebody who's a friend of yours, um, the complexity of how that, that works in a relationship and how, for example, as a monk for myself, I want to honor, I don't, I want to honor the fact that I'd like him to always feel welcome to be at the monastery and inspired to be at the monastery. And, um, and that comes foremost, um, and not rather than like what I'd rather do, which is like, hey, this is how I want you to do it. I'm going to pay you to do it. I don't want to hear anything else, you know, because I've already heard it. You know, that if, if, it, if it comes to something difficult, I'm not saying that that's happened, but if it comes to something difficult, but you can't say that to somebody who's a supporter of the monastery. It's, it has to be very, it's, it's a constant kind of work around right speech. And, and I'm not saying that I would say that in that way to another person, but you can have a very straightforward business understanding with somebody. Um, but when they're like part of your family, it's not, you can't, you know, it has to, it has to be, it has to be delicately dealt with and compromises have to be made where it's like, well, it might be okay to, to have somebody who's working for you professionally. If they're, if they disagree with you, that can be okay. Um, and sometimes you just need to keep the conversation short and just say, look, we're, we're going to pay you for this. This is how we want it done. This is how we do it here. Um, I understand you have your opinion, but I'd like you to just do it. And you hear them and they tell you what they think, but you might still come at that line. But when it's a supporter, there's also the whole sensitivity around the relationship and preserving that relationship and being very careful. Um, and uh, so it's not just a professional you know, relationship about what, what's happening between the two people. Um, so the, yeah, those are, those are a lot of the lessons that I had. I think the perfectionism is what's hardest. The, um, the, the uh, one of the kutis um, was, uh, there were a lot of problems in the beginning and some unfortunate earthwork occurred that didn't work out so well. Uh, in fact, at like almost every site, and that was, um, I didn't know exactly what I was doing, but the person who was doing the earthwork definitely didn't know what they were doing. And so we had to abandon one full site. Um, and then the other site, we, we had put the foundation holes in for the piers. And then the inspector came and he was like, uh, no, this isn't going to work here. And so we were thinking, how do we do this? And um, so I ended up hiring an engineer and they are expensive engineers. Um, and that was letting, having to let go a lot of that, you know, that was this perfect site I had. Uh, 
and, and then it was just, it's not going to work. So then where I put it, I decided to put that Kuti. I was like, well, I still want to preserve the view. And if I don't put it this way, it turns out that like, I, <laughs> I put the Kuti very close to the road. So it's like, and, and now every time I drive up to, I'm like, oh my God, it's this huge, it's just this thing, like, right, right. When you make this turn, you just see this big, you know, Kuti, like, like to me, it's like in the middle of the road. <laughs> you know, it's just like, and I hit it, stop. Um, and most of the other monks are like, it's going to be fine. Just, it'll be fine. Just let it go, you know, let it go. But that's another thing is, is letting go of those things. You know, the choice was made. I made the choice exactly where it is. And I regret it. In fact, the other day I, I was talking to one of the workers and he's like, why didn't you put it there? I was like, well, where would you put it? He's like, here. And I was like, yeah, that's definitely better. <laughs> it doesn't matter. We're building it here. Like they're like, you know, a third way through the Kuti. <laughs> so that's that letting go that needs to happen because whatever project we have, whatever idea we have, it's just not going to be how we want it. It's always going to, it's always going to be not the way we want it because it's going to be, it might be better in rare cases. It might be better, but um, it has to be different because the planning in our head is always different than the reality of what the experience is. The more we can bring that into our, our practice. Okay. I plan this out, you know, but it's, I know it's not going to work out. This vacation is not going to work out the way I want it. You know, this marriage is not going to work out the way I want it. Um, my children are not going to work out the way I want them to, you know, this brand new car is going to be an absolute nightmare <laughs> or whatever. It's not necessarily bad, but if we, had, if we can see that it's going to be different, then we get back to that anicca. And it's so incredibly important because most of our suffering is based on our expectation that it should be a certain way and our difficulty with letting go that it's, you know, when it's not. Um, and so, like, probably I would say people who have a successful marriage deal with that to a, an incredible degree. They say, okay. The, the, the dukkha is, I'm going to marry this person, they're not going to change. Or I'm going to marry this person and they are going to change. Either one, there's dukkha. Because they're going to probably change, yes, but not in the way that you want. You know? And the ways that they're staying the same are the ways you also didn't want. So you just have to deal with that. Um, but can you let go? And can you see the goodness that does change or the, or the things that were good that, that stay the same? And, and you focus on that rather than um, oh, this is all bad, or I just wanted perfection in this. Um, you know, I think kids are probably even more difficult because you have so many expectations, how they should be, you know, through everything. Um, this is what's called like uh, helicopter parenting. And you're just watching your kids all the time and, and they just, they can't, they're just always going like this, like, what's mom going to say? You know, because they, no, they have no independence to figure out things on their own. Uh, ironically that ironically it's so funny that it's not funny it's very sad that parents who do that to an extreme degree they are, they're trying to keep the environment safe for their children and, and to keep their children's lives safe and they end up creating neurotic and weird and um you know children who can't be independent and don't know how to make their own minds up or or even take risks and so it's very strange that that kind of parenting then leads to exactly what you didn't want, which was a, a, um, a child who can't think for themselves and is too afraid to do so. Um, 
So we, we can benefit so much from being open to uh, this, this, this sense of a Nietzsche, the sense that we don't know how things are going to go. And the more we invest in our belief that we do or that it's going to make me happy, then um, the more dukkha we, we inversely uh, create in our lives and, and we experience. Um, when poor Pasana just had a quote that Achinyanaka liked, he said, we conjure dukkha out of thin air and then we wonder why um, we're suffering and wonder why we're having a problem. Well, sorry, we wonder why we're not happy. And we do it. That's what we're doing all the time. Uh, our, our mental activity is, is bent on doing things that create dukkha in our lives. And, but then the irony is that we don't recognize and then why am I not happy? And it's because we're actually creating the conditions for our own unhappiness. And that, that very question around why am I unhappy doesn't recognize it. It would be okay if we recognized it. Yeah, it's, oh, I, I get it. Then, then that's wisdom. So sorry, it's a, the coffee's still talking. <laughs> it's good coffee. <laughs> Any other? You computer better be prepared if you ask a question. <laughs> Yes. No, I was just going to add that uh, so patient endurance goes a long way. Yeah. Yeah. That's the other thing is that um, people often think that uh, it's sort of like a fluffy experience. It's going to be, uh, I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to learn in this way. It's going to be, you know, when we plan. Um, like, it's like kind of like when you're meditating, you're like this is supposed to be pleasant all the time. You know, why isn't this pleasant? And rather it's patient endurance as, okay, wait a minute. Can I endure it? Can I, can I patiently endure it? Can I, am I willing to be with this no matter how hard it is? And that's different than this should be easy. This should be pleasant. This should be how I want it. Patient endurance is, no, it shouldn't necessarily be easy. The Buddha said it's the hardest thing to do in the world. It's the hardest thing to do in the world. What does that require? Does it require my expectation that it's supposed to be nice and pleasant and, and leave me always satisfied? You know, but then what's the satisfaction we're looking for? The satisfaction we're often looking for is like that nothing's going to perturb me. I'm just going to have these nice people around me all the time and the conditions that are always good and the food that's always good and everything. But that's not, that's not what the Buddha's promise is. Uh, it's that we will be released from our mental anguish, our, our suffering. We still will experience pain. So, so patient endurance um, allows that to change. You know, we change our focus away to like, um, I'm feeling restlessness right now is the way, you know, to, to deal with that, just to, um, you know, get up and not feel restlessness or to, um, force myself into peace or to, um, to not to say like, well, if I wasn't restless, then I'd be happy. It's no, well, what can I learn by just seeing if I stay with this restlessness, if I'm with it, I'm patiently with it. I'm allowing myself to stay there. How can I learn from that experience? And then our, our, our mind moves towards learning rather than what, what is, um, what can I get out of this? This is going to be pleasant. 
sensually um, enjoyable. That's sort of like the, the, the pathway that we're not seeing, um, that we tend towards. When I first arrived at Abhayagiri after having a fair amount of meditation experience um, uh, over a short period of time, I got there and, and, you know, I was just kind of gearing towards becoming an Anagarka and I get there and for two weeks, like my meditation practice was just, can you stay seated? You know, I just had this incredible restlessness arise for two weeks when I first got there to stay. And, and I, I was, I had experienced a, a good amount of peace during my meditation before that, um, you know, for a couple of years of practice. And then it was just like, that was gone. But the expectation wasn't gone that, well, meditation is peaceful. This shouldn't be happening. So the, the, just changing that attitude, like, well, can I endure this? Can I learn from it? Can I stay with it? Then it was painful. But what did I realize that I could? I didn't have to get up. That became the objective. Don't get up. You know, just don't react to this incredible restless feeling I was, I was having um, of just like, I gotta, I gotta get up. This is crazy. You know, like the whole body was vibrating. And uh, because I switched the focus um, from like my expectation of what I should be feeling to just like, well, just how about just seeing if you can get through the hour and that's your, that's, that's what you're learning about. Then it, it really helped me. I felt actually a lot of confidence. And then within two weeks that was, that was gone. So that's, that's a, a huge part of the practice Ajahn Chah would emphasize. Um, and the Buddha also said, patient endurance, sort of the supreme austerity, he says. And, and you can see it. It's like, what do, what do people who have a lot of interest in the practice do? And then, and then they, you know, they're getting a lot of inspiration and you know, they're, they're having, you know, the lights are coming on and they're like, wow, that's amazing. And then it just kind of, that doesn't happen for, for like, as practice continues over years, you don't often get those kind of experiences as easily, you know, or they, they come after a long period of time. And so um, without patient endurance, people just usually give up, oh, this isn't, there's no bright lights anymore. And they're, they're forgetting that it's desire that caused that, that attitude to happen. That like, oh, I just want something, I want something new and exciting. So I'm just going to drop this because there's no endurance. There's no patience with it. Mm 